Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, you've heard me mention before that this particular year, as we do every three years, we are looking specifically at the Gospel of Mark. And I am trying this year to sort of pull out, tease out some of the unique features of this second Gospel. Believe it or not, for centuries in the church's life, people rarely heard from the gospel because almost all of the Sunday readings in the one-year lectionary were from Matthew or Luke or John. Mark sort of got short shrift. So it's fun to be able to go and actually pay attention to this book that the Holy Spirit intentionally placed within our canon. Some of the unique features of Mark's gospel we've already talked about, the fact that some people simply call it the passion of Jesus Christ with a long introduction. Jesus is in a, or Mark is in a hurry to get us to the cross. That's the other, of course, feature of Mark's gospel, the use of the word euthus, immediately. When Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That's only 13 verses in the first chapter of Mark. There's a lot more immediately going on, as we will hear the rest of the year. But the third feature, and the one we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, is what's often called the messianic secret. That in Mark's gospel, Jesus is recorded multiple times telling the demons and even telling the crowds and his own disciples not to tell anybody anything until he has risen from the dead. Some ways he's channeling Elisha in our Old Testament reading. Keep quiet. Don't say anything. I know. We actually saw this messianic secret first a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, where Jesus does his first exorcism. And as he rebukes the demon, he says, Be silent and come out of him. And then just a few verses later, when Jesus is healing many who are sick with various diseases and casting out the demons, he would not permit them to speak. Ironically, because they knew him. And then at the very end of Mark chapter 1, in a passage which I think we'll come back to later, a leper comes up to Jesus imploring him and kneeling says to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. There's that word again. And he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Once more, today, at the end of this momentous transfiguration of Jesus, where Peter and James and John see him shining in a white robe, even more white than this one, with Moses and Elijah, at the very end, Jesus, as they're coming down the mountain, charges them, doesn't just tell them, commands them not to tell anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the question is, why? 
Aren't we supposed to be about sharing the good news? Isn't that why we call ourselves the Good News Place and teach English on Tuesdays and Thursdays and do open houses like we did on Friday and all sorts of activities in the community that we might tell people of Jesus Christ? Why? Why, after all of these momentous things, exorcisms, healings, and the transfiguration itself, does Jesus charge the disciples to be quiet? All right, I want you to put a pin in that for a minute, because we're going to circle back to the answer. But before we do, we have to lay a little bit of groundwork. One of my favorite Christian singer-songwriters when I was in college was a man by the name of Charlie Peacock. He's still writing really great stuff. But he wrote a beautiful song based on Psalm 69 that goes like this. The water is up to my neck. I'm sinking in the deep. There's no foothold to find anywhere. I'm very worn out from calling for help. My throat is hoarse and dry as a bone. My eyes have failed me from looking for you. Are you looking for me? Songs called Down in the Lowlands. And it's not the only psalm that goes like that. Psalm 13 is another one of my favorite psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy exalt over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. And if the Psalms aren't sufficient, there's the book of Job. There's the book of Lamentations, and the list goes on. The scriptures are filled, filled from Genesis to Revelation with the cries of people in the midst of anguish who are asking, where are you, Lord? Where are you in this moment, and will you ever come to rescue me? Those are not moments when we are up with Jesus on top of the mountain or with God at Mount Sinai. These are moments that always seem to happen when we are in the valley, when we are, in the words of Charlie Peacock, down in the lowlands. So circling back, we have Jesus on top of the mountain, transfigured, shining like the sun, with the two greatest figures of the Old Testament. The kind of figures where if you get asked that old dinner question, who would you invite to dinner if you could invite anybody in the whole world? Every Jew would have said, Moses and Elijah. And there they are with their master, with their rabbi on this mountaintop. This is a roller coaster, Disney World, Ladoned experience for Peter and James and John. Good, but also terrifying. It's right there in the text. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's good, but it's also scary. And the Bible is filled with these mountaintop experiences that are good and also terrifying. Elijah ascending up into heaven before Elisha's very eyes. My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Let's just stay here. Let's build a nice monument on top of the mountain. Here on day such and such of 800 and so and so B.C. Of course, he wouldn't have known it was B.C. yet. The greatest prophet after Moses ascended up directly into the presence of God. 
But Elisha can't stay on that mountain. He gets sent down into the valley. He gets sent down to the lowlands. Because that is where ministry happens. Not on the mountaintop. Or like Moses, as referred in 2 Corinthians, who is up on the mountain with God and he is in the presence of God for so long that his face starts shining and it is so bright that people can't look at it. He's got to put a veil over his face so that when he comes down, he looks somewhat normal and people don't go blind. He can't stay on top of Sinai. He has to come down because the people of God are not up there with him on top of the mountain. They are in the valley. They're really down in the lowlands of the desert of Sinai. And dear Christian friends, this is precisely why there is a messianic secret in Mark. And it is why, after this momentous occasion of the transfiguration, Jesus charges them not to tell anyone. Because what good would that do? People don't live on the mountaintop. He doesn't want to create a spot of pilgrimage and have everybody flocking to Mount Nebo, supposedly, where this happened. People live in the valleys. And we often find ourselves in the lowlands. And that's where Jesus must go. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful, and we all love them. We love going to Laurent, some of us. We love going on vacation. We love going to that place we have always wanted to see. We love being there on the mountaintop. But God will not let us build booths and yurts and tiny houses up there on the top of the mountain. He calls us to the places where ministry happens, where he insists on being. And that is not at the peak, but in the valley, in the lowlands. Those are the places where God has always promised to be. Look at the one psalm that most people know, and sometimes by heart, the one we use at every funeral service. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The mountaintop experiences are wonderful. But what you and I need to know, and what the world needs to know, is will God be with them in the valleys and in the lowlands? And that is why Jesus does these wonderful signs that you might know that he is God, and then says, don't tell anybody, because they won't understand yet. Right now, we need to go to the valleys and the lowlands, where people have leprosy, where people are sick, where there are the poor, where those who mourn, where those are looking for peace, and they need to know that God has not abandoned them. I used to love youth events when I was a kid. It was a thing I looked forward to all year long from the time I was about 14 years old. Every summer, we got to gather together with other Lutheran kids, and just like right here, there were never that many Lutheran kids in an individual congregation. My church in Ottawa, which is one of our bigger churches, there was basically me and maybe a couple of other teenagers on Sunday morning. But here we would go to Kitchener or Winnipeg or Vancouver, and we would be there with 200, 300, sometimes 1,000 other Lutheran teenagers from across the country, and we would be singing with these great musicians and listening to these fantastic speakers and, and spending evenings talking together and having dinner together and just being in fellowship. 
gives a mountaintop experience every single summer for three or four days. But you can't live there. You can't live at those youth events. Most of life happened in the valley. It happened in the lowlands. And I was able to go and survive that time and all the rotten stuff that happened in high school and all of the, the gospel or the, the gossiping and all of the backbiting and all of the failed tests and the difficult exams and the teachers wagging their finger at you because I knew that God was with me, not just at those youth events, but he was with me in my classroom at high school and he was not going to abandon me. Of course, there's one mountain that disproves the rule and that is Golgotha. It's Calvary. If you think about it, Golgotha is where the lowlands meet the mountaintop. Yes, it's a mountain. And on that mountain is a cross. And our Lord, who has promised to be with us in our lowlands, went through his own lowland for you and I right there on those pieces of wood with nails driven through his wrists and his ankles, dying proving that even when the mountaintop is the lowlands, God is still there for you and for me. He's there in the lowland mountaintop because that's where sin has to be atoned for. That's where the world will be redeemed. Now, it's a blessing from God to have transfiguration and resurrection and ascension moments It's great to be there in the field when the angels descend from on high and sing their great hymn. It's great to be at the Jordan when we see the Son being baptized and the Spirit descending like a dove and the Father speaking from heaven. And yes, it's great to be there on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah and Jesus shining like the sun. But we cannot stay on the mountain because ministry happens in the valley. Ministry happens in the lowlands. And we don't tell everyone about the mountain of transfiguration. We tell everyone about Golgotha and the mountain of crucifixion. Because that's the mountain that is there when we are in the valley. It's the mountain that proves that Jesus is with us even in the lowlands. Amen. May the grace, mercy, and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ guard and keep us always in the one true faith unto life everlasting.